It's a minute past the hour of 6 o'clock. Good evening. No, not been a bad day, Paul. It's Wednesday, June 10th, 2015. And this is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Glad you are with us. Uh, forgive us. We haven't been here for the last couple of weeks. It was an uh, unavoidable uh, telephony problem, I guess you might say. Uh, certain carriers are not particularly cooperative with progressive radio outlets, if you know what I mean. And uh, the folks on the other end have been working diligently hard back on tonight, and we will be back on from now on. So uh, please indulge us and a thousand pardons, Mayor Culpa, for not being here before. We're going to talk tonight about a number of what I see as interrelated stories uh, with regard to police and black people, both living and dead. And the one thing that I find is a common thread among these stories is the use of smartphone video. Now, I mentioned this to somebody not too long ago. I said, you know, this technology has the power to change the relationship between the police and the community. And right now, it's doing that after the fact, after someone's tragically killed or whatever. And we'll talk about that. But it does have the power over time to change policing, not just in New York City, but in municipalities all over the country. Because I submit that once it sinks into, into police officers' heads, that any action they take could be subject to being recorded and played back and put up on any number, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, or whatever. When that sinks in, I believe it will eventually, not right now, not tomorrow, but eventually, it will change policing. Either that or the cops are nuts, which I don't think they are, quite frankly. If I were, for example, here in New York City, Patty Lynch, who's the president of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, just got reelected with 70% of the vote. If I were Patty Lynch, I would call my members together or call my delegates together and have the delegates pass this message on to the public, on to the uh, uh, rank-and-file police officers, and say to them, hey, listen, this recording, you first of all, there's nothing you can do about it. That's number one. You can't, although some have tried, just like walk up to people who are recording an incident and snatch the cell phones out of their hand. They have the legal right to record you. That's number one. Number two, and I think this is, is just as important, you may not know that somebody's recording you. Okay, the people involved in the Eric Garner situation, the cops involved in that situation probably didn't know at first that somebody was recording their actions. I'm quite sure the cop in the Walter Scott case in South Carolina, which we're going to talk about shortly, or the cop in the uh, case in McKinney, Texas, they didn't know people were recording them. If they did and they acted out like this, they're insane and have no business in the police department. Once you look at what they did, you'd have to agree they got no place in the police department anyway. But this technology, and I, I, I think there are two things that, that, that play into this. On the one hand, the police sooner or later are going to get used to the idea that people will record them. And the other part of this situation is that the public will become even more comfortable than they are right now in recording actions of the police. And it doesn't have to be, there are organized groups out here that do this. I, I, I get Facebook posts every day with some sketchy policing. We're going to talk about one in particular here in New York took place back in April. But I get sketchy policing all the time on Facebook. Little videos, grainy or otherwise. One I saw the other day, I couldn't believe it. Uh, some cop was a plainclothes cop, was going after like a 14, 15-year-old kid. I think this was in New York. And the community essentially told the guy, get back in your car and get out of here. And he did. I couldn't believe my eyes. No gun drawn, nothing. 
They were going to try and snatch this girl. I don't know what she allegedly did or did not do. Now, here's the flip side of this particular situation. And then we're going to get into specifics. All right? I promise. Specifics. Here's the flip side of it. No one wants to prevent the police from doing their job, which is theoretically keeping law and order and catching bad guys, catching criminals, and get people engaged in criminal conduct. Nobody wants to see them stop doing that. The flip side of that is, you know, recording the police is not an excuse for the police to say, well, we're being hamstrung by the community that's recording us. We no longer know what to do. We can't make split seconds. That's all crap. And I know it's crap. There is a way to police without having a video put up on YouTube of you, the officer, looking like a complete moron. There's a way to do that. It's possible. Now, uh, you may want to make the case that it's never happened in America before or in very, very uh, limited instances in America. But the fact that, first of all, cops do, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them do a really good job at what they do without being brutal, without being racist. Okay, and we'll get into the whole racism thing with regard to some comments by Bill Bratton a little later on in New York. Sturm and Drang in northern cities like New York and Cleveland and L.A. and Wisconsin and other places all over the country, the enlightened north, where cops get off shooting unarmed black people, it is in North Charleston, South Carolina, where the law took what I think most activists would feel was its normal course. A police officer shot a man to death. His name was Walter L. Scott. It happened in April, and, as I mentioned earlier, it was recorded by a passerby. The officer, Michael T. Slager, has been in jail on a murder charge since April 7th. His lawyers, and this is ironic, lawyers have made no requests for bail. So, Monday, he was, in fact, indicted. He was fired by the North Charleston Police Department after the shooting. And, I mean, city officials in North Charleston, South Carolina, were very explicit, very pointed about what this was. An unlawful killing with malice of forethought was the premeditation required to exist for only a few seconds before killing in order to gain a conviction. That's under South Carolina law. And that's according to Scarlett Wilson, the local prosecutor, who sounds like she's going after this clown with all claws bared. And, uh, you know, this is really, really interesting. Now, I would guess the next step is the defense attorney for Michael Slager is going to ask for a change of venue. He may ask for it to happen in South Florida or someplace. But I, I imagine he's going to say, well, I can't get a, a, he can't get a fair trial in North Charleston, South Carolina. For those of you who don't remember this, this happened April 4th. Mr. Slager, who was white, stopped Walter Scott for a broken taillight, a broken taillight while he was driving in North Charleston. A dashboard camera and Slager's patrol car recorded the first minutes of the stop, and the video showed mostly routine. Now, Walter Scott apparently fled on foot. He may have run his family things because of outstanding child support obligations, which he thought might have ended up getting him locked up. Slager gave chase. Once the officer caught up with Scott, there was a tussle over the officer's taser. When Scott turned to ran, Slager fired eight times. Some of the bullets hitting him in the back. Now, the thing about it is, this could very easily have been one of those situations, which we hear about in other places, where, well, I mean, the officer felt, as a matter of fact, I think they may have said at first, 
uh, he, he, he felt for his safety. He was worried about his safety. He fought over the taser. He had no choice but to shoot the guy. Apparently, the justice system in North Charleston, South Carolina, was not buying it. Wasn't buying it. Now, before Walter Scott died, Slager had been the subject of two formal complaints, including one for excessive force. City cleared him of wrongdoing in that case. Uh, but it's interesting. He was involved, by the way, according to records obtained by the New York Times, involved in 19 use of force episodes during his tenure uh, as a police officer. 14 of those 19 involved is using a taser. So he, he's a taser happy guy. But currently, he's sitting in the who's gal awaiting trial. And again, how different is this from what we normally see happen in these instances? Jumping from South Carolina down to McKinney, Texas. Again, a cop who didn't know he was being recorded decided to go buck wild on a 15-year-old kid in a bikini. My God. Uh, and again, I, I'm, I'm not going to emphasize this too much, but I'm going to say it because it is a quote from the New York Times. The video was taken on a cell phone and posted to YouTube where it set off another in a series of debates involving race and police tactics. At the root is the technology, the ability to record somebody during these kinds of situations. I'm telling you, man, it's going to change things. It'll change things as surely as marches change things, uh, or as certainly more surely than what I saw earlier today. And, and I always got to chuckle when I see this. Uh, a conservative radio chain, who shall remain nameless, has decided to hold some kind of a town hall meeting on some of their stations about po uh, police and race. The two hosts, wait for it, two white guys. <laughs> I find two conservative white guys. Uh, and if they get a black guy, you can bet you behind it's going to be a conservative black guy. Not that I have anything against conservatives, you understand. But I find it hilarious that these folks feel empowered to say, okay, well, we're, you know, we're conservative. We stand up for conservative values. So now let's talk about race and policing. Those Negroes, if they would just act right, they would, if they had more fathers in the home, it wouldn't happen. I'm sorry. That, that's an unkind cut at conservative talk radio. But you know what I'm talking about, right? So McKinney, Texas, guy named... Corporal David Eric Case Bolt, who has resigned from the police department, I would submit to you because he knew he was wrong. Apparently he's in hiding. He's, his lawyer says he's getting death threats. His conduct was inexcusable, as was, I might add, the conduct of the other cops that responded to this thing. It started apparently when there were racial epithets hurled at a group of young black people who were attending a pool party by white residents in the immediate area. That's how it started. And then apparently some of those white residents called the cops. Now, if you want any proof at all that this incident had its basis in race, in terms of how the police responded to these young black kids, there was a white kid that was part of this group that was partying at this pool. And the white kid said, and I saw him say this, so I ain't making this up. The white kid said, you know, the cops, they went after black people, and then they skipped over me and went after some more black people. <laughs> I said, yo, whoa. Now, you know, in addition to that, Case Bolt was shouting obscenities and profanities at the teenagers. Officers handcuffed several who had followed his orders to sit on the ground. He appeared to grab the girl and pin her on the ground when she did not heed his orders to leave. Now, at a news conference, Mayor Brian Lo Loaf Miller, 
said that uh, there's a need for better training for police officers, but that there needed to be expectations for interactions with the police. Okay, here's one. How about you don't put a, a, a 15-year-old kid in a bikini on the ground, place your knee in her back, and smash her face into the pavement? How about that for an ex expectation for interactions with police? And what does the mayor say? We share the public's legitimate interest in a full and fair investigation of this matter. We are currently awaiting the results of the McKinney Police Department's investigation. You know what that means. And ask for patience as their investigation continues. So, you know, and, and this thing was, I don't believe, and I wasn't there, obviously. I've never been to McKinney, Texas. But I don't even think that these black kids were particularly out of order. It seemed as though there were some residents, not black, in that immediate community, because they started start talking about, that's why you're all in Section 8 housing and go back where you came from. That kind of racist crap came out of the mouths of some of these people. But let's see what happens. Uh, as of now, I'm not sure that Case Bolt is facing any charges in connection with his act of singular act of barbarism. Against, by the way, a black citizen he was sworn to protect. So we'll see. He quit because I think he knew what, again, when it sinks into people's heads in law enforcement that you can be videoed at any time, you're going to mitigate your behavior. You're going to chill. You can't. Now, I, I don't believe that means that cops are not going to try and stop bad guys. I don't believe that. I believe cops are too professional to hide behind that kind of crap. I really do. But that's, of course, the first line of defense. But they can't stop it. It's like trying to put toothpaste back in the tube. These young people, older people, whoever can afford a smartphone, has the ability, even me, <laughs> with my limited skills with a phone and technology, you can record stuff. There's a button on there, you hit it, and bam, you're off and running. And the, the best that cops usually come up with is, well, you didn't see what happened before they started running the tape. As if some of these unarmed black people had suddenly decided to pick up an Uzi and, you know, commit suicide by cop. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the end of the story. It's not. Now, a cop in East Harlem shot an alleged gunman, a detective with a special victims unit, shot and wounded a man who allegedly pointed a gun at him and his partner in East Harlem. The uh, gunman was identified as Wilvinson Diaz. And he was seen opening fire on a 21-year-old man who was walking away from Diaz. Now, I'm, I'm sharing this story because I think it's important to say to people, yeah, there are instances when cops have to shoot people. If somebody's got a gun and he's shooting on somebody else and he refuses to put the gun down, that's a righteous shoot. But you see, this is the problem. This is the nub of the problem. And I don't know that there was a video taken. It is. But the nub of the problem is, with all this other stuff that's going on, righteous shoots get questioned. People start saying, well, nah, man, I don't know. I'm not sure. And, you know, again, you know, you have the police account of what happened here with this guy, Wilkinson Diaz. By the way, he didn't die. He's been charged with attempted murder, felony assault, criminal possession of a loaded firearm, criminal use of a firearm, Reckless endangerment <coughs> and the pH to resistance <coughs> unlawful possession of marijuana. There you go. Which one's he gonna do the most time for? You wonder. Now, some of you may remember, I told you we got a lot of stuff to talk about with the police all over the country. We've already visited South Carolina, Texas, East Harlem. Now we're going to Cleveland. Now, 
For those of you who don't know this, 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot to death last fall. Um, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office did an investigation was only delivered to prosecutors last week, more than six months after this young man was shot. Community leaders in Cleveland, and I give them all the credit in the world for this. I don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but I give them credit for thinking of it. They are preparing to make use of a quirk in Ohio law that allows citizens to go directly to a judge and request the prosecution of the police officers who shot Rice. By the way, shot him two seconds after arriving on the scene. The Rice family attorney, Walter Madison, who worked with community leaders as they planned to seek charges, said, quote, if you look at every other instance, it ends up unfavorable to the families. And by the way, you know, the Justice Department just had Cleveland sign a consent decree, which essentially admits that their officers were, uh, how best to put this, racist and brutal? Okay, that's it. Now, it's, you know, unprecedented, or there's little precedent for citizens to request an arrest in a high-profile case like this. But it can still be used in Ohio. Not every place else, but in Ohio, any person with, quote, knowledge of the facts can request an arrest without getting the approval of a prosecutor or grand jury. Not used often, but it has been used. Now, Tamir's family attorney, Walter Madison, says he's, he, has no, he knows of no instance in which an Ohio judge had ordered the arrest of a cop based on a citizen complaint, but that most previous citizen complaints had been frivolous. The request was filed yesterday. It includes six affidavits outlining the crimes that community leaders were uh, believed were committed in the killing of Tamir Rice, who I think had, like, a toy gun. They don't know that Cuyahoga County prosecutors are going to bring charges because they say the prosecutors are too close to Cleveland police. Where have I heard that one before? Well, never mind. Uh, you, you hear it in a lot of cases involving allegations of police misconduct. Uh, if it was approved and the, the cops involved were arrested, it would be followed by a public hearing. Community members said that was preferable to allowing prosecutors to make, this, make the decision in secret. It's innovative. It's smart. And by the way, uh, the cops couldn't wait more than two seconds for him to drop a toy gun. Two seconds. Two. And that's what ended Tamir Rice's life. So, hey, I say, go ahead. Give it a shot. You never know. Now, here's a story that, again, speaks to the nexus of technology and uh, law enforcement, or law enforcement of a low sort. Bronx man who was arrested after a traffic stop in April. A Bronx man who was arrested, but not before he managed to capture one of his arrested, arresting officers on cell phone video, admitting, quote, I don't even know why we pulled him over. This guy... Benjamin uh, Farias, is filing a lawsuit against the city. He alleges that around 6 o'clock on April 20th of this year, he was pulled over near the intersection of the concourse and 204th Street. He asked repeatedly why he had been stopped. According to the suit, when the officers claimed that Farias's license had expired, he produced a document from the clerk's office in Bethlehem, New York, confirming that the suspension had been lifted. The officers proceeded with the arrest anyway. So what does Farias do? He places his recording cell phone in a drink holder before he was handcuffed. And by the way, he was cuffed so tightly, he fractured a wrist. After they searched his car, the only thing the cops found was, quote, an uneaten cookie. Now, the video was uploaded to YouTube April 30th. In the last 20 seconds of the video, one officer can be heard from off camera saying, I don't even know why we pulled him over. What was the reason why you pulled me over, asked Farias? Another voice responds, 
just put cocaine test. Now, as it turned out, Farias spent two hours at the 52nd Precinct in the Bronx. And the cops there attributed the stop. Now, listen to this very carefully, folks. They attributed the stop to an obstructed windshield. How was his windshield obstructed? A Christmas tree air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. Farias' attorney says, unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that's consistent with what I've seen in other cases. What makes it unusual is that Farias had the presence of mind to turn his camera phone on. Again, more technology. More technology, by the way, that we didn't even have 10, 15, 20 years ago. There's no way you could have gotten any of this stuff. I mean, the best you could have done was a video with a video camera. You know, we all know how bulky those used to be. And some stuff got captured. I think Rodney King's beating got captured on that. That was 20-odd years ago. But this is different. This is different. Because it's so ubiquitous. You know how many cell phone users, how many smartphone users there are in America? I think last time I saw something with a count, it was like 60, 70 million people. Well, if, you know, a properly functioning number of those folks decide, you know what, I'm going to record the next encounter I see between a cop and a citizen, and the cop was disrespectful, rude, uh, God forbid, brutal, racist, whatever. That's it. That is it. Because quiet as is kept, and you know, the PBA and them don't want you to know this, but quiet as is kept, police departments cannot really afford the kind of fallout People are starting to pay attention as to how much a city, not just New York, any city, has to pay out in settlements over this kind of crap. And you know what? They'll find another cop. They'll find somebody else to take your place. If you're so stupid as to commit an act of brutality, rudeness, or whatever, and somebody happens to have a cell phone camera and they video you. So, I guess an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Probably not. Not in most cases, anyway. Bill Bratton mentioned him earlier, the police commissioner of all of New York City. Now, you know, people sometimes, I don't know, you say you were quoted out of context, the quote was inaccurate, and then you double down on the very quote you said you didn't make. Bill Bratton says it's a challenge to find blacks to go into the police department because so many men, African-American men, have been arrested. Quote, we have a significant population gap among African-American males because so many of them have spent time in jail. And as such, we can't hire them. Now, mind you, he said this in an interview with the Guardian newspaper. That's the Guardian over in Britain. They have a New York bureau here, unlike most New York papers that don't have a bureau in Jersey. But that's another discussion for another day. Bratton put at least part of the blame for this, according to the Guardian, on stop and frisk. He said, the unfortunate consequences of stop, question, and frisk, which is obviously a policy that hits communities of color, young men in communities of color, artists. But since the article went online with the headline, quote, NYPD Chief Bratton says hiring black officers is difficult, so many have spent time in jail, Bratton went off. He went off. Quote, we're asking, we're not even asking, we're demanding a retraction and a correction because the story was a total misrepresentation of the original story. The original interview was done by one reporter, and then they had a second reporter who took the first reporter's story and totally misrepresented it in the second article. Okay, so it's misrepresented. The Guardian is at fault. They messed up, right? Okay, that's fine. But then why did Bratton double down on his statement if it was so wrong? He says, 
and I quote here, the doubling down, Amanda, that's well known. It's an unfortunate fact. But in the black male population, a very significant percentage of them, more so than whites or other minority candidates, because of convictions, prison records, are never going to be hired by a police department. That's a reality. That's not, repeat, not a byproduct of stop and frisk. Now, he says 15 to 20% of black males have some type of criminal history. Now, some of them may have some type of criminal history, but that doesn't necessarily connote arrests, convictions, uh, summonses, whatever. But leave that aside for a moment. How does anybody in their right mind think that the number of black police officers will ever rise as long as the top guy in the department approaches recruiting like this? Now, you know, the mayor, for his part, said through a spokesman, a spokeswoman, excuse me, that he, quote, is committed to a diverse police force, and he and the police commissioner are committed to recruiting officers that reflect New York City's diversity. You know, you, you, the Koch brothers could put out that statement in terms of their hiring practices, you see. But even with the call for a retraction, Black leaders and elected officials are not happy. Not happy at all. Uh, says, uh, and this is interesting, Rochelle Bilal, chair, vice chairwoman of the National Black Police Association. All right? We're not talking about Black Lives Matter or some other, quote, radical group. This is the National Black Police Association. Quote, there are plenty of African Americans who haven't been to jail. It does seem a little insensitive to say that you can't recruit because most of us are in jail. Where does he get that? I'll tell you where he gets it. Out of thin air is where he gets it. Because if 15 to 20% do have criminal histories, 70, what is it, 80, 80 to 85% do not have criminal histories. It may be higher than other groups, but that doesn't mean you can't find qualified recruits out of the 80% that don't have records. That's insane. Vince Warren, who's the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, says Bratton's words defied logic. It's definite with, uh, definitely within the purview of the NYPD to fix this problem. Bratton has to deal with it and not throw up his hands and say, we're giving it the old college try. <laughs> doesn't even sound like he's actually doing that. The NYPD needs as much aggressiveness in trying to find good qualified black candidates as it puts into trying to exclude them through stop and frisk and broken windows policing. Bill Bratton's going to end up being Mr. Broken Windows Policing. And, and by the way, Bratton says, these are facts. I've always dealt, I always deal with facts. You know, there were some people a while back who were calling for his head saying he was the wrong guy for the gig. Because there were some other people that could have ended up being police commissioner, killing, including Phil Banks, uh, including, uh, what was the Latino guy's name? I think Pinero. There were other candidates. They didn't have to bring Bill Bratton here. And now I'm starting to wonder why. If that's his attitude. Eric Adams. Brooklyn Borough President, former state senator, former NYPD captain. He says, quote, those stops where you were told to empty your pockets, and once the cops found marijuana, you're now charged with a misdemeanor, and that happened very often in communities of color, as we know. He's not lying. He is not lying. So, will Bratton survive this? Probably. I don't know how many people are going to jump up and start marching out of his office and say he ought to go for this. But I got to tell you, I am gravely, gravely disappointed and personally insulted. And believe me, I'm way past the age where I could be a candidate for the NYPD, so this ain't sour grapes on my part. I'm just saying. You ought to be able to do better than to place your abysmal record in recruiting black people 
on the fact that, you know, well, so many of them have criminal records. It's nonsense. Foolishness. And Bratton, <clears throat> I must add, knows this. Now, shifting gears just a bit, going from the Bronx and into New York City, let's go upstate, where two convicted murderers have managed to escape from the Clinton Correctional Facility. That's up in Dannemora. It's about a spitting distance from the Canadian border. It's got about 3,000 inmates, and it's one of the most difficult. If you live in New York City and you got family in Dannemora, you see them about once an eon, okay, because that's how far it is and how off the beaten path it is. Well, this, I think, points up, you know, they, they've managed to escape. They apparently use power tools. They are viciously, and, and maybe it's justified, I don't know, but they are all over a woman who works there, Joyce Mitchell, who was a civilian supervisor. I think they called her Tilly or something. They're saying she aided and abetted these guys in getting out, and that she was even going to drive the getaway car till she had a last-minute change of heart because she was so enamored of one of the two of them, and the woman's married. But leave all the salacious sleaze out of this for the moment. Because in my mind, it doesn't matter whether she's married. I don't care whether she was aiding and abetting or whatever. There are some fundamental facts that people ought to know about the prison system and about the jail system in New York and all over the country. And it's a very simple fact. People don't care. They don't care. Only when two convicted murderers escape and may be out among us, then people care. But in terms of the day-to-day -day operation of the prison system or the jail system, you know, uh, I, I heard so I heard this, I forgot where I heard it, but I heard it just not that long ago. People said, you know, uh, hundreds if not thousands of people in the New York system and in other systems, they got diabetes. You know why they got diabetes? Because the food choices they have are crap. Okay? Now, you might not necessarily want to go to Whole Foods and devise your jail or prison menu based on that. But the fact of the matter is that people get sick in jail, that there's violence in jails, that there are these occasional breakouts, because it is a, it is a, a self-contained system. People that are outside, people that have never been inside, they don't know what goes on and they don't want to know what goes on. All they want to know is, are you keeping them locked up? That's all they want to know. And as a result, you have a system that is composed of staff and administration, inmates and corrections officers, and they create their own world. Because they know nobody from the outside world, or very few, I won't say nobody, very few people from the outside world care enough to see what's going on, much less do anything to change it. They know this. And as a result, you know, you can talk about understaffing, you can talk, see, because what, what usually happens is, depending, they just start tossing blame, which, of course, they did here from the minute they realized these guys weren't there. Well, it's the sloppy, sloppy guards. They're the ones. They must have been asleep on the job. Or this woman. And, and what's interesting about this is you want to talk about an economy, all right? She works at Dannemora. Her husband works at Dannemora. Uh, husband Lyle is also a civilian employee at Dannemora. Dannemora is the employment office. Clinton Correctional Facility is an employment office. Absent a jail in that place, and by the way, there's 3,000 inmates and 1,400 guards. Absent that facility, what are those, what are those 1,400 people going to do for a living? And I don't even know the population. I could look it up, but I'm not going to bother. But I don't know the population of Dannemora. But imagine what would happen if there was no prison. That's not an excuse to say a prison should be there. I'm just saying, it is an economy that is dependent. 
just like you know, the, the, the people that cover the White House are dependent on having a relationship with the press secretaries and the White House staff. It's interdependence. And the COs know, in this case, that their livelihood depends on being, being able to reach some kind of accommodation, some kind of accommodation with these inmates. So it, it ends up being a standoff. And unless there's some huge problem, and of course, you know, the excuse for the administration is, well, this has never happened here before. No, nobody's ever taken power tools and broken out of a prison. And then, you know, they check the power tools and all of them are accounted for. Every last one of them are accounted for. So then it's like, well, somebody must have got they, they must have an accomplice. So they, they found this woman, Joyce Mitchell. If it turns out, because apparently she took it on the lam <laughs> the minute they started giving her grief, she actually, the day they broke out, went into the hospital for some kind of problem. But uh, they say that these folks have, have actually gotten a distance south of the prison. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, Mitchell checked herself into a hospital on Saturday uh, with a case of the nerves. And, uh, you know, the, the cell phone apparently was used to call several people with ties to one of the convicted murderers that escaped. It's not clear whether she was aware that somebody was using her phone or who made the calls. So apparently there's this small upstate town in, called Willsboro, about 40 miles southeast of Dannemora. And, you know, everybody up there is licensed, you know, got concealed carry permits, they got weapons, they got this, they got that. Just on the possibility, I guess, that some miscreant or miscreants would break out of a prison. And off they go into the wild blue yonder, and these people, apparently one guy, pulled a, a shotgun on a reporter that was coming to his door to talk to him. Because, you know, reporters, when something like this happens, and, and it's a small town, I don't know how many people live in Willsboro, but it was a small town like this, they descend like locusts, and they'll interview anybody in the town. So a guy pulled his gun, said, I don't know you. <laughs> so uh, imagine, and, and this is not to downplay, these guys are, are murderers, all right? They both killed people. So they're not to be taken lightly. There were rumors that at least one of them was looking to settle some old beefs. I don't think too many of them were downstate, but they were supposedly looking to settle old beefs. Speaking of old beefs, let's look at Iraq for a moment and look at the latest White House strategy to deal with Islamic State. The, the Obama administration is going to establish a new military base in Anbar province in Iraq and send up to 450 more American military trainers to help Iraqi forces retake the city of Ramadi. Sounds good, right? Let me not throw water on your parade, folks. The Iraqis don't even want to fight. They can't fight, but they don't, they're not trained. And the United States is not going to train them, number one. That's why ISIS has made such huge inroads inside Iraq, because these people can't fight. Remember, a year ago, they were fighting, I guess it was ISIS, and, and they all deserted. <laughs> they all left. They took it on the land. These are not fighting forces. And see, part of the reason for this, and I'm not saying it's right, and I'm not saying it's wrong, okay? Uh, but they disbanded Saddam's army after the invasion of Iraq. Saddam's army, if nothing else, had chops. They knew how to fight. These new people were essentially incentivized, I hate to use that term, but they were incentivized by money. They can't fight, and they haven't been trained to fight. And they don't have a military organized structure that, allow them, that would allow them to fight. So now, these additional troops will get there early this summer, and it will be focused on training Sunni fighters with the Iraqi army. They call it an adjustment to try and get the right training to the right folks. 
I have seen a lot written, a lot spoken about, a lot, you know, back and forth and back and forth and et cetera, et cetera, about America's efforts to destroy ISIS. I believe, and it's just my belief, you, you don't have to agree with me. I believe that trying to train the Iraqi army is the wrong thing to do. You know, and think about this for a minute, okay? You got a beef with somebody, and that person is bound and determined to whip your behind. And you don't think you can whip his behind. What do you do? You either fight it out and get your behind whipped, or you run. And if you never learned how to box or never learned how to fight, you're done for. That's the Iraqi army. These people are not trained fighters. And keeping the U- keeping another 4,000 U.S. troops there is not going to make them into fighters. The only rational plan I heard, and I know they're not going to do it, but I still, you know, well, <laughs> the only rational plan I've heard about this is to go to the Kurds. You remember the Kurds? Now, the problem with the Kurds is they want an autonomous state, Kurdistan. That's what they want. But they, the Peshmerga, the Kurdish fighting force, is the best equipped fighting force today to take on ISIS. They may not have the weaponry. They may not have the backing of the United States like the United States is throwing good money after bad with the Iraqi army. But if America got behind the Kurds, the Kurds would fight these people. I believe. Might not win every battle, but they would fight. The Iraqis have shown no will to win. They figure you send an extra 450 people, you all fight them. We're going to lunch. The Kurds could do this. But you see, here's the problem. The United States screwed the Kurds two decades ago with a promise of help that never materialized. So, long story short, you got some convincing to do with the Kurds. I just think that the president's policy on this is wrong. The United States, by the way, still has 3,000 troops, including trainers and advisors, in Iraq. If that was working, the Iraqi fighting force would at least be able to hold their own, which, as far as I can tell, they haven't been able to. Now, if, you know, if the end game is to say, okay, the Iraqis can't do it, We'll beef up a fighting force, and we'll go in, and we'll do it. That's one thing. I don't. I, I got no guarantees you're going to be able to beat ISIS either. Not unless you send it a massive commitment of American manpower, women power, and firepower. I don't believe it can be done. I think the Kurds could do it, but we're not talking about the Kurds here. And maybe, just maybe, we should. Now, as it stands now, Islamic State controls two provincial capitals as well as Fallujah. Remember Fallujah back in the day? With the help of American air power, big help of American air power, the Iraqis have retaken Tikrit, northwest of Baghdad. But so many buildings there are still rigged with explosives that many of its residents have been unable to return. So, you know, and by the way, in order to retake Ramadi, which is their end game here, they're going to have to double the size of the Iraqi fighting force. I don't know. More than 3,000 new Iraqi soldiers are to be recruited to fill the ranks of the 7th Iraqi Army Division in Anbar and the 8th Iraqi Army Division. Now, how many infiltrations do you think can happen with them going out and recruiting like this. I'm just saying it's possible that they may go out and recruit what they think are Iraqi fighters, but at the end of the day, maybe not so much. Bears watching. That's all I can say. Bears watching. I personally am not optimistic. You remember, of course, the very tragic 
Amtrak crash outside of Philly. Eight people were killed. And, you know, there was a question as to whether or not the engineer that was driving that train, Brendan uh, Bastian, may have been using a cell phone while he was driving the train. Well, it turns out they're going to have to pin this thing on something else because he didn't and wasn't using his cell phone. An investigation now says that his cell phone was in his bag. He was not distracted by a call or by a text. And I said this at the time of the crash. There is no excuse in America in the 21st century for a train to be going around a curve. And trust me, it wasn't dead man's curve or anything, but there's no excuse for going around a curve at 106 miles an hour and have a catastrophic derailment and crash like this. I know the thing was only supposed to be taken at 50, but you have to ask yourself, is our infrastructure so poor, so poor, that we can't build it to the point that a train could actually take it at 100 miles an hour? Because if we could, that means you might be able to get the train to travel 200 miles an hour on some stretches, and it would be a genuine change. But, of course... That's just me speculating. I am glad to hear. And I, I, I mean, I hate to I hate to say this in a way, but I'm glad to hear they can't pull, pull you know, uh, dump on human error here. The guy says he, he has no recollection of the crash at all. I don't know what caused it. I know that when these things happen, usually there's a conscious effort to blame a person, any person, pick a card, any card, and say, this is the reason why it happened. Well, it's not going to be so simple this time. Not quite as simple. Jeb Bush. Now, Jeb Bush is, by all accounts, going to announce he's running for president next week. Okay? He's got name recognition since his brother and his father were both Presidents of the United States, okay? He's former governor of Florida. His campaign apparently is going so badly. And by the way, this is a classic example of trying to put lipstick on a pig. Went so badly that he's reorganized his political team. Now, if you haven't announced for an office, why do you even have a political team? I understand why that is. Because he's gearing up to start. But apparently... His poll numbers aren't great, and he, and more importantly, he hasn't been able to raise money. Because, of course, what kind of candidate are you if you can't raise money? I saw something about them, his not being able to reach the goal by the end of this month that everybody thought he was going to be able to reach. Be that as it may, he uh, booted his uh, campaign manager, a guy named David Kochel, And he is now going to be serving as chief strategist with a focus on states that, like Iowa, hold caucuses and primaries in the early part of the campaign. That's interesting because, of course, uh, a, quote, center-right candidate like Jeb Bush, the, the early primaries and caucuses could hold some peril because that's when the true believers come out. That's when the, you know, the tough conservatives come up. Now, they got 20-odd people who are already running. Everybody from Rick Santorum to George Pataki to Rick Kelly. I mean, uh, everybody's running. And, of course, you've got Jeb Bush getting ready to run and Chris Christie, who, in a huge news announcement, says, well, his family's behind him now, as if his family never was. So now he's going to make an announcement soon. That could bring it up to as high as 22, 23 people running for the Republican nomination. And as someone I had a long conversation with earlier today said to me, some of these guys are going to be gone by January, (laughs) which is true. But, you know, Jeb Bush makes news by firing people, which I find, how best to put this, quite interesting. 
We'll see. Now, his new campaign manager is a guy named Danny Diaz, who's known as a grinder, one of those get-things-done, hard-nosed, kind of like a Republican Rahm Emanuel, I guess. You know, maybe curses a lot, that kind of stuff. Bush says that is where his skill sets are. And uh, when he was asked about polls that show he's lagging or not strongly leading in a few early states, especially Iowa, he said, quote, Polls are, you know, it's fun to see them when you're winning, not so fun when you're not. It doesn't really matter, though. Yeah, because you haven't announced yet, homie. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. He wants to compete in every state, including those where he might get beat. But who are they going to Are they going to vote for Marco Rubio? Are they going to vote for Scott Walker? Rand Paul? All these people, ladies and gentlemen, are running for the Republican nomination. And they're going to try and out-conservative each other until early next year, when one of them, or more of them, may wake up and realize that pandering to that extreme right-wing base is so out of touch with the rest of America that the more they pander, the less likely it is they could win the general election against JoJo the dog-faced boy. But hey, you know, that's just me. Um, do you all use a lot of salt in your food? I, I know I do. It, I, I have sinned. Like, I, I'm starting to eat hard-boiled eggs in the morning. And I love hard-boiled. I, I'm not a big egg white fan. I love the yolk, actually. But I love to just put a lot of salt on it. Not a lot, but a fair amount of salt on top of the egg, on the hard-boiled egg. I have it, my, my endocrinologist said I should get that protein in the morning because generally speaking, I don't eat in the morning. I have a cup of coffee and I, I barely then eat, not until about 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, Bill de Blasio has decided to get tough on salt. He's declared war. He's got a new proposal through the health department to implement warning labels on menus. Oh yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Well, actually, it's interesting to contemplate what kinds of measures he's talking about. Uh, when you consider what the salt, the sodium content of some of these foods are. For example, a chicken burrito from Chipotle with the works has 2,485 milligrams of sodium. The sizzling skillet fajitas with shrimp and steak at Applebee's has 5,960 milligrams, nearly two and a half times the recommended amount of sodium. Of course, high sodium intake has been linked to high blood pressure, which is in turn leading to strokes and heart attacks. But, you know, any medicine that you see advertised on TV would likely have the equivalent side effects. Have you, have you all seen the side effects some of these people have on, on these drugs that are supposed to help you? Side effects include death. Well, sorry, uh, that's interesting. The mayor wants to do this, and even some of his allies are saying he's going too far. Maybe he is. I don't know. Um, for me, it's just like me. You know, maybe printing sodium counts wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Putting a big warning on stuff because you know the salt manufacturers aren't real happy about this. But maybe this is not the worst thing in the world. I don't know. You know, because, you, you know, you're looking at calorie counts and carb counts and this count and that count. When do you stop counting, ladies and gentlemen? When do you stop counting? Anyhow, I think it may be about time for me to mosey. Not sure. Uh, it looks like it's about that time. But uh, we'll see. I, I, I can maybe, maybe, just maybe hold out for another minute or two because it says it's 7 o'clock by my clock yeah my watch says 7 o'clock too so maybe it's time for me to go I want to thank of course Jason Taubenfeld back in the studio who's keeping things on the count and correct and uh, we'll be back in a week 6 o'clock the Mark Riley show have a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead